We are continuing our series on Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, 17 through 32 this morning, Ephesians 4, 17 through 32, continuing part 9 of our series that I've entitled, I Believe in the Church. And so we're going to be looking at this, uh, the second half of chapter 4, and if you remember last week, at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul wants to emphasize this importance of unity and oneness. He actually says at the beginning of chapter 4 that in light of everything you've heard in chapters 1, 2, and 3, this amazing truth, what does he start off with in the beginning of chapter 4? He says, I am eager for you to maintain unity and oneness. And that's what we looked at last week. And the reason that he's eager for the church to maintain unity and oneness is because Paul understood that the mission of the church would be jeopardized if the body was divided. We are called the body of Christ. And if the body is divided and the body is not one, it would jeopardize the mission of the church. And so with that in mind, he continues on here in verse 17. So keeping that in perspective, he's thinking about unity and oneness and the importance of unity and oneness in the body of Christ, which is his church. Hear the word of God. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. They have become callous and they have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy, to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you've learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth which is his na- which, with his neighbor. For we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with everyone in need. And let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for building up as fits the occasion, and it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, but whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another. Tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And so, God, Lord, I pray that this word, this word of the living God, would fall fresh on us this morning and it would make us new. Amen. One of the things my children love to do is they love to play dress up. They love to play dress up so much. My brother was down a few weeks ago, and in, in the course of an hour, my, my children came out of their bedrooms with two or three different outfits in one hour. And he said, well, you know, what is this, Halloween, he said? And I said, no, this is every day in our home. You know, you could go from one minute being Elsa to being Anna to being a police officer to being a pilot, you name it, we have the outfit for it. But I was thinking about why, when my brother said that, why do kids love to dress up so much? But if you think about it, kids love to do 
all things when it comes to covering up, hiding, playing dress up, right? From the, from the littlest of babies, what do they like to play? Love to play peekaboo, right? Put the, put the blanket over their head and go peekaboo. And, and then what do they transition to? Then they transition into dress up. And then what do they transition to? Playing hide and go seek. And I began to think, what is this pattern? I mean, from the littlest of babies, we love to play dress up and play hide and go seek and play peekaboo. And as I began to think about it, as adults, we actually never really grow out of that, do we? We just become a little more sophisticated in how we hide. We become a little more sophisticated in how we cover up. And I think what Paul is trying to get at here is that we live a life of hiding and covering. We play a life of dress up. <laughs> Although it just doesn't look like my little three-year-old dressing up as Princess Anna or Princess Elsa. The only difference is it just looks a little more sophisticated. And what Paul is trying to get at here is that you never really grow out of this unless something happens outside of you. And what Paul is trying to get at here, continuing this theme of unity and oneness, maintaining unity and oneness in the church, he wants us to understand that the only way that unity and oneness can be maintained in the church is if the Christian embraces their new life. That it's not a life of covering and hiding. It's not a life of having to play dress up. But it's actually a life of putting off our old self and putting on our new self. So if there's one big idea I want us to take home this morning is that the new life is critical. The new life in Christ is absolutely critical to maintaining unity in the church. And and as we look at verses 17 through 32 this morning, I think it answers three fundamental questions about life. And particularly three fundamental questions about this new life, this new humanity that Paul has been talking about in chapter 2 and then reiterated again last week in chapter 4, that God is making a new man, a new creation, a new humanity, which is called the body of Christ, which is his church. And so he answers three fundamental questions about this new life. The first question is this, because you might be sitting here going, what's so bad about the old life? Right? You might be new to church. You've maybe never stepped foot in a church before. And you go, the old life and the new life, the old self and the new self. What's so bad about myself? What's so bad about the old self? And he answers it here in verses 17 through 19. What is so bad about the old life? And what does he say? He says, you can't walk as the Gentiles walked, which was synonymous for those that don't know God in the New Testament. It was a, the, the, the people that weren't part of the people of God or the nation of God or the community of God. Don't walk as they walk in what? The futility of their minds. Why? Because their understanding is darkened because they've been alienated from the life of God. What Paul is trying to say here is what's so bad about the old life or the old self is that, first of all, it was alienated from the very life of God. It was disconnected from the source and the fountain of life. It was disconnected from the one who provides life and grace and hope and love. And what begins to happen? We begin to see in the old life that because it's disconnected from the life of God, everything is rendered meaningless. He says it right here. In verse 17, 
in the futility of your minds, in the darkening of your understanding. What he's basically saying, what an indictment that those that are do not, that are not connected to God, those that are disconnected from the life of God, basically all of your thoughts and everything that goes on in your mind and all of your desires are absolutely meaningless. Could you imagine? Think about that. Apart from God, everything in life is meaningless. It sounds a lot like Solomon, right, in Ecclesiastes, when he talks about life apart from God. What does Solomon eventually say? Everything under the sun is meaningless. He says, everything, nothing is new under the sun. Everything is rendered meaningless. And so what Paul is trying to say here, life apart from God, the old self, that ultimately that that life means very little. Everything you've hoped for, everything you've done in life, everything you've chased after, everything that has driven you so far in life, all of your hopes, all of your dreams, all of your goals, if they are disconnected from the life of God, they are absolutely meaningless. And so I say, what's so bad about the old self? That's pretty depressing. If life apart from God means that, then I don't want any part of it. you imagine going through life thinking that your life actually meant something? That your thoughts and your dreams and your hopes and your desires and your goals and your achievements and your resume and, and everything you've done in life actually meant something only to find out that apart from God it actually meant nothing. So what's so bad about this old life? That apart from God... Life is meaningless. The second question I think it, it answers is, what's so good about the new life then? If, 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 this ba- if this old life is so bad, if the old life means absolutely that everything in my life is meaningless apart from God, then what's so good about it? And it, we get that answer here in verse 20 through 24. That Paul says that you now have an opportunity to get rid of the old life, this old self that Paul says is rendered meaningless, that is rendered worthless, that doesn't mean anything at the end of the day. Paul is saying that there is good news for those that are in Christ. You have the opportunity and you have the privilege and you have the gift of ridding the old self, getting rid of the old self and putting on the new life, the new self. But what is so good about it? And we find it here in verses 22 through 24, that we put off the old self, that we're renewed in the spirit of your minds in verse 23, and that we put on the new self, which is what? Created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And we have to stop there and ask, who is the one that is truly righteous and truly holy? Who? Sunday school answer, right? Jesus. See, what makes, the good, what makes the new life so good is that Paul says that not only can you take off the old self, but you can put on the new self, which is made in the image and likeness of God, true holiness and true righteousness, which is who? Who is the epitome of true holiness and true righteousness? It's Jesus Christ himself. So the good news here is that what makes the new life, the new self so good is that it is Jesus Christ, that you are actually putting on Christ covered in Christ, hidden in Christ. The Bible will talk about robes of righteousness. That for the Christian, that you actually exchange your your robes of success. You 
take off your robes of achievement and human approval and you exchange it for robes of righteousness, the approval of God in Jesus Christ, that you actually can be clothed in it, that you can get rid of your old self and put on your new self. See, this is the story, this is the grand story of substitution, the very substitution of Christ where Christ takes off our robe and puts it on himself, that he takes the old self all of our sin and all of our disapproval and all of our judgments and everything a part of our old life. And Jesus puts it on himself and does what? He exchanges it for the robes of righteousness, that we get his righteousness and he takes our sin. That is the substitution of Christ. And that's what makes the good news so good. But what's the problem? Why can't we just leave here this morning and go, great, thanks, Pastor Rob. We just put off the old self and put on the new self. Because every single one of us this morning struggles to believe that this new life, that what Christ provides us in the new self, if we're all honest, we all struggle to believe that it's actually better than the old self. Because every single one of us, every single day, wrestle with and struggle with putting on the new self, because we go, but I still like the old self. And we find ourselves every single day going, yeah, but I like to play dress up. Because dress up just kind of feels better. I like getting dressed up in my bank account and how much is in my checking account. I like to get dressed up in kind of how people approve me. I like wearing the garments of, of what you will think of me and your approval. I like playing dress up in what kind of home I have and what my vacation this summer is going to look like. I like getting dressed up in my resume. I like getting dressed up in how my kids succeed in life and what they end up doing. I like getting dressed up in my education and my status. We like it so much. So we go, why in the world would I exchange it? And what Paul is saying here, and this is so important, what does he say in verse 22? He says, get rid of it. Why? The end of verse 22, because it is corrupt through deceitful desires. What does that mean? What Paul is trying to say here, and it is so important, is he's saying your old self, for those that are in Christ, is earmarked for destruction. It's death. It's, it's as if you were putting on like a dead body on top of you and say, hey, look at me now. Paul's saying, Paul is looking at us and he's going, you are absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> you have the new life. You have the very life of Christ, the robes of righteousness that you can put on his approval and his love and his grace. And you're walking around with your old self. He's like, what are you, nuts? He's, I, I love the movie, uh, if, if you've ever seen the movie, uh, The Christmas Story, by far the, one of the greatest Christmas movies of all time. And the Christmas story put out in 1984 is that great scene on Christmas morning where, where Ralphie gets, I think it's from like his great aunt or something. You remember the bunny outfit? Remember Ralphie gets the pink bunny outfit? It's like the onesie pajama. And, and the mom goes, go on, Ralphie. Your aunt worked really hard on this. And he goes upstairs and Ralphie sheepishly comes downstairs and he looks absolutely ridiculous. He's like 10 years old, uh, you know, wearing this onesie pink bunny pajama. And what does the dad go? Do you want to wear this? You look ridiculous. Go take it off. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. It's like we're walking around in a pink bunny onesie pajama and he's going, what are you doing? You have the new life. You have the new self that you can put on the very righteousness of Christ and you're wearing that? 
It's dead. It's put away. Jesus has taken it. Jesus has taken it. But the problem is we hide behind it. We hide behind our old self because we're enslaved to it. And that was the problem of the nation of Israel all throughout the Old Testament. I heard Tim Keller once say that you could take the people out of slavery, but you cannot take the slavery out of people. You can take people out of slavery, but you can't take the slavery out of people. That you can rescue people through Jesus Christ, but we find ourselves believing the lie that actually my old life was a little better. And Paul's sitting here going, are you, what? What are you thinking? And that's what makes the life so good. The new life is so good because Jesus has taken your old self. The old self that is earmarked for destruction and death. And he says, I give you new life. Something outside of us that makes us new. That we don't have to look at yourself this morning. That's the good news. The good news this morning is that for those that want and desire the new life, that look at your life and go, I do want this new life. The good news this morning is that we don't have to dig down deep inside. That we don't have to look in ourselves. That we can go, there is someone outside of us. And his name is Jesus Christ who provides this new life for us. Where do we find Jesus? We, we, we find him and this new life underneath the cross. And that's what makes this, good, this new life so good. And then lastly, what makes this old life so bad? What makes the new life so good? Lastly, what does the new life actually look like? Verses 25 through 32. And Paul states in verse 25, he says, therefore, and if you know anything about the word therefore, it's there for a reason. Because when you see therefore in the Bible, what does it do? It's like a, a sign that just points us backwards. And it says, in light of everything you've just heard about the new life in Christ, therefore live this way. In light of this incredible substitution, in light of this in incredible truth that there is new life in Christ and that Christ has taken on from us the old self and given us the new self, therefore this is what the new life looks like. Hence, we always see this gospel pattern, always being and then doing, being and becoming. Understand who you are in Christ and therefore live this way. And in verse 25 through 29, in particular, Paul identifies four things. What does he identify? Lying, anger that leads to sin, stealing, and corruptible talk. Lying, anger that leads to sin. Notice he doesn't say anger is a sin. Anger that leads to sin is bitterness and resentment. That's for another sermon. Lying, anger that leads to sin, stealing, and corruptible talk. He lists four things here. And what do those four things all have in common? They're all things that destroy relationships. See, Paul is taking us back to this whole idea of unity and oneness. And not just unity and oneness in the church, but unity and oneness in every sphere of life. Relationships with your kids. Relationships with your spouse, relationships with your friends, relationships with people that are not like you, relationships in the church, and every sphere of life is jeopardized by these four things in particular. Why? Because these four things, lying, anger that leads to sin, stealing, and corruptible talk, tell us what? When these things happen in relationships, why do they destroy because they signify not the new life, but they signify the old life. And what was the old life? The old life was marked by a life that I didn't have everything I need, therefore I have to take it away from you. 
why do I need to lie to you? Because there's something missing in my life that I don't have. And if I lie and twist the truth, maybe you'll believe something about me that you didn't believe before. Why do we allow anger to grow into sin and to bitterness and resentment? Because there's something you have or you're not doing that I want you to do, and it's causing me to become bitter and resentful, and it divides our relationship. Why do we steal from people? Not only steal tangible things, why, why, do, we, why do we steal, uh, steal people's time and their energy and their emotions? Why do, why do we live a life of stealing? Because once again, there's something you have that I don't have. Why do we have corruptible talk in relationships? Why am I quick to tear you down? Why am I so quick to, to make you feel this big? You know why? Because I feel this big. Because I feel small. And because when I feel small, I want you to feel small. When I don't feel like a hot shot, I want you to not feel like a hot shot. When you don't, when I don't feel like everything's going well in my life, I want you to not feel like everything's going on in your life as well. And I will make your life as miserable as possible and talk down to you and tear you apart because there's something inside of me that makes me feel better. And what Paul's saying is this is not what the new life looks like because the new life embodies everything that we need and everything that we have in Jesus Christ. So therefore, I don't have to lie to you. I don't have to tear you down. I don't have to steal from you. My anger does not have to turn to bitterness and resentment because everything I have in Jesus and in the cross is all that I need in life. And so what Paul is saying here in closing is that Jesus is not just someone who is added to your life. He becomes your life. He's not just a segment of your life. He becomes the new life that you are covered and hidden in him. Therefore, you don't have to operate as the old self operated. You can live as the new life, the new self, which embodies everything that we have and everything that we need in Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what separates us from the rest of the world. It's what separates Christianity from every other religion. You see, every other religion would take verses 25 through 32 and go, just live this way. I went to a civic association meeting two months ago, and literally, you could have read this passage. Somebody gave a 15-minute talk in our civic association meeting about how being be nice to each other. We need to be for each other and support each other. And what that reminded me, that everybody in the world wants verses 25 through 32. Who doesn't want this? Who wants to live as one? Who doesn't want to live in community with one another? Who doesn't want their relationships to be restored? Whether it's with your mom or your dad or with your spouse or with your children or with your friends or with your coworkers, who doesn't want relationships to be restored? But I sat there going, they have no idea how to get it though. And there's not any religion in the world, there's not any philosophy in the world, there's no civic association in the world that knows how to get this. And what Paul is trying to say is we do. We have the only power, the only source for reconciled relationships and unity and oneness. It's found beneath the cross of Jesus. Let me close with this. There's a powerful verse that I don't want you to miss In verse 30, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 
I've read that verse all my life, and I never quite understood what it meant. And what it meant, because I went, how does the Holy Spirit grieve? It's kind of like the passages where it says God's crying or God's weeping. I'm like, the Holy Spirit has everything the Holy Spirit needs. God has everything he needs. What would cause God to weep? And what would call the Holy Spirit to grieve? What causes the Holy Spirit to grieve is, is that he has marked you, and he has sealed you, and you belong to him. That's your seal that you are forever marked as a child of God. And what causes the Holy Spirit to grieve is not that he is missing something, but it's that you are missing something. When God weeps, it's not because God is missing something, it's because you are missing something. And what causes the Holy Spirit to grieve is when the Holy Spirit looks at your life, that seals your life, and he goes, you could have so much and you settle for so little. That you have the new life in Christ and you settle for the old life. That you have the new self and you settle for the old self. Isn't that a beautiful thing? That we have a Holy Spirit that doesn't look down and condemns us, but we have a Holy Spirit that weeps with us, that weeps for us, that grieves for us, and says you, ha- you could have it all and you settle for so little. To sense the bigness of God, that the Holy Spirit is the very one that has adopted us and reconciles us to God and reconciles us to one another. Shortly after the Korean War, there was a, a Korean woman who had, a, she had an affair with an American soldier and she got pregnant. And about three months into the pregnancy, the war ended and the American soldier went home never to see his baby girl born. And if you understand anything about the Korean culture, that the mixture of two cultures and two races is frowned upon. Somebody of mixed culture and race in the Korean culture is looked down upon and frowned upon so much that the children are shunned and even the moms contemplate abortion. And so this girl grew up, this little girl grew up being ridiculed and the mom could not take the pressure and so the mom one day did what she never thought she would do but she did it. She abandoned the girl on the streets And after two years of living by herself on the streets, she was picked up by an orphanage. And in the orphanage, the girls were responsible for cleaning. The girls were responsible for getting the boys ready. Getting the boys ready for what? Because nobody wanted a Korean girl. And certainly nobody wanted a Korean girl that was half American and half Korean. And so all the, bo- all the children that were adopted in this orphanage were only boys. So the girls' one job was to cook, to clean, and to get the boys ready to be picked up by their families. Well, one day they heard that an American couple had flown into town to adopt an American boy, uh, to adopt a baby boy. And this girl says she can remember the day vividly that this couple walked in and it was like Goliath had entered the room. And the husband and wife picked up every baby, every baby boy. And after an hour, they started to walk out and the girl thought, are they not going to take one of the boys home? And the father walked over to the girl and looked down at her. He touched her head. He touched her face. And he said to the person in charge of the orphanage, can you tell me about this girl? 
And she went on to tell the story. And the girl says, I'll never forget it. I was about 30 pounds. I was scrawny. I had lice on my hair and boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight. But this man came over to me, and he looked at me, and he said, I want this child. This child is for me. And that girl says, I'll never forget that day because that man loved me. That man rescued me. And it was the new life that he gave me. And that is exactly what we have this morning. We have a Savior, and his name is Jesus Christ, who offers new life, a life that we could never hope for or imagine. And for those that sit here this morning and say, it's too good to be true, I say to you this morning, it is true that new life can be found in Jesus Christ, that God is working out this mission to reconcile us to God and to one another, and this new life can be yours. And the gospel is this incredible story that Jesus came to live, came to die, and was raised again for you. That Jesus is for you. And what's incredible about the context of a church, that Jesus is not only for you, but he's for us. And that is a beautiful thing. And so I ask you this morning, do you know this Jesus? Do you know this one who offers this new life? It can be yours today.